This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. High-ranking U.S. government officials during the Trump administration allegedly tried to stop government agencies from reporting on intelligence related to Russian disinformation and other activities. When I first arrived at DHS, I saw things that I believe were inappropriate, and um, I made it known uh, among the chain of command there. His name is Brian Murphy. And when nothing was addressed, uh, I filed my first of three whistleblower complaints. What was the, f- the thing that you saw that was inappropriate that made you start thinking about filing whistleblower complaints? Abuse of authority to change what the intelligence was showing um, to fit a political narrative. That That's regardless of what the threat was that we were tracking at the time. That was a consistent theme from uh, DHS leadership as well as some of the other uh, government officials I encountered. Coming up on this episode of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. On the previous episode, we talked about how Russian disinformation had really done a number on the American public. And on this episode, we learn a part of the reason why was because it had done a number on the U.S. government. There were people inside the government that did not want the Department of Homeland Security at all to talk about the impact of disinformation from Russia on America. The man who blew the whistle, Brian Murphy, joins us today to put into context exactly how big a problem it was, how deep the problem went, and how close we came to total disaster. You got some notoriety because you were a whistleblower while you were working inside of DHS. Why did you become a whistleblower? Well, thanks for the question. Uh, To me, it was uh, an incremental process where uh, when I first arrived at DHS, I saw things that I believe were inappropriate and um, I made it known uh, among the chain of command there. And when nothing was addressed, uh, I filed my first of three whistleblower complaints. First one was 2018. Uh, a, a much broader one was in 2019, and the one that got me the notoriety was, wasn't until uh, 2020. Okay, um, so all, let me let me jump in real quick. What was the f- the thing that you saw that was inappropriate that made you start thinking about filing whistleblower complaints? It was the uh, basically uh, abuse of authority to change what the intelligence was showing. Um, to fit a political narrative that that's regardless of what the threat was that we we're tracking at the time that was a consistent theme from uh, dhs leadership as well as some of the other uh, government officials i encountered what were the um themes that they were trying to uh, execute a political narrative regarding 
so th they change, but there's basically three broad ones um, that I'll put out there. The first is um, you, the Southwest border, anything really related to that uh, had to fit a specific political narrative. Uh, the second was uh, white supremacy. Um, I joined the department after uh, Charlottesville and the president's comments, uh, you know, got interest in the media. Um, but because of that, anything with white supremacy had to fit a certain narrative. And lastly was uh, Russia. And that was the biggest of the three where uh, it was foreboding, you know, within uh, the organization to report the facts about uh, disinformation mm -hmm. and misinformation coming out of Russia. And what were the facts in a general, as a general matter in summary? Uh, so with, with respects to Russia, uh, it really was that the Russians were indeed supporting um, Donald Trump and his policies, for the most part, there are some exceptions to that, and uh, denigrating the various uh, Democrats, whether they were closer to the elections or well before that, um, you know, in terms of uh, the uh, 2018 elections and just general topics that would come up, they, they were tended to be more in favor of uh, what uh, Trump's positions on were things. and and. The uh, political officials uh, and some non-political officials did not want that to come out because of the politics that was happening at the time in the United States. It was basically, as you can imagine, would be a uh, would be worse if you want to put it that way for uh, Donald Trump politically. This was happening at the upper levels of the Department of Homeland Security. Is that correct? Uh, it was the, the upper levels of the Department of Homeland Security and. Um, uh, in other agencies as well that, that I personally experienced, including the um, Office of Director of National Intelligence for as an, ex as an example of another agency. So we're talking about, if I remember correctly, the timing, we're talking about Rick Grinnell. We're talking about Ken Cuccinelli. Uh, or maybe we're talking about Chad Wolf. Who are we talking about, these people at the upper levels there? Yeah, I think you name them. Um, you know, there's, those are some of the key figures uh, that would be more recognizable to people, um, perhaps. But yeah, those three are great examples. Well, so, so <laughs> what was their objective? I mean, obviously, they wanted to, to please their boss, but I mean, they had to know that some of the stuff that was coming from Russia was wrong, was 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 factually incorrect. It was it was lies, and but they didn't want. DHS to tackle it because they were afraid of angering the boss or afraid of how it would impact the boss politically. Um, how far did this go? How far did, were these people willing to go with this? Well, I mean, they were willing to go, they were willing to do whatever it takes. Uh, I mean, you know, their ethics wasn't something that was in the conversation. It was about, uh, you know, political, uh, um, calculus, right? So well before 2020, it was much more about a defensive posture to protect, if you, their, their words, to protect the president, right, from um, a negative uh, spin cycle in the news or, you know, losing voters, et cetera. Really, when we got closer to the elections and in January at this time, the information was highly classified. Uh, so only a few of us knew in government, we, we got the signals that, hey, this was going to be an all out uh, blitz by the Russian intelligence services to do what they've been doing, which is support Trump and denigrate at that point. There were still one or two candidates still around, but it would ultimately be Biden. So when we got close to the elections, obviously, it was a much more direct uh, that will not report on these things because of that political spin. It wasn't like a question or, you know, an implied uh, 
I don't know, threat or intimidation. It was like, we're not going to do this, and here are the reasons why. I have heard from several sources and actually seen some of this myself in my own um, coverage and reporting of DHS and the intelligence community during the time of Rick Grinnell, and I think Cash Patel was there at one point, that this hysteria or whatever it was that was going on sometimes seemed to approach what some considered almost a cult-like environment. Um, what do you say to that? You know, I certainly have not seen that type of uh, personal dedication to the president where what mattered was um, the personal side of it, right? So it should be, and what it normally is about is uh, the policies and what's good for the country. And I certainly understand there's a political bent to all of this, but not in this way. You know, cult, uh, I, I don't know if I'd call it a cult, but what I would probably say it's it's not normal for um, kind of high level government officials to have this kind of personal infatuation or uh, desire to please or, uh, you know, those types of things, right? Uh, that's that's unusual. And whether that's a cult, I mean, obviously, yeah. uh, okay. I think people would judge that, but. That's fair enough. Um, but um, how dangerous was what was happening there? How, how dangerous was that? I think it's extremely dangerous. Um, you know, we approach crisis points that we now see coming out of uh, former officials throughout the government and uh, previous ones and, and great work that journalists are doing. I mean, this is this was extremely dangerous. I and mean, you do not ever want to have uh, the person be the thing that you're trying to uh, protect and promote. You know, it should be that's for the political staff to do for elections, right? But from the internal workers of the intelligence community or law enforcement or any organ, organs of uh, state, local, federal government, I mean, that is recipe for everything to be, um, you know, a disaster. I mean, it's really dangerous. You became a target because you refused to go along with what was going on. Is that correct? And if that's the case, tell us when that started and how it happened. Sure. So, I mean, it started pretty much from, again, I arrived there in March of 2018. And by uh, November of 2018, I issued my first um, uh, report to the Inspector General's office. And really after that, um, because I was flagging things that was related to the Southwest border and the manipulation, the disinformation, that the, uh, the the abuse of the intelligence process, you know, but after that, once I became a known, you know, that I was not going to put up with this and was going to do something about it in the filing, I mean, I, I thought I'm surprised I last as long as I did to uh, July of 2020. But to say I had a target on my back, uh, people would always, you know, kind of half joke saying, I can't believe you're still here. Um, I'm surprised they haven't fired you yet. So give us a sense of some of the things you had to deal with or had to go through as I'm assuming if you had a target on your back, there was internal activity designed to make you uncomfortable. So give us a sense of what you had to go through. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, you know, initially after I filed the uh, first complaint, you know, I got word uh, from my boss at the time that they were they were looking to fire me. Um, and, you know, that didn't occur, but obviously it made me nervous. Um, it wasn't that I, um, you know, look, I, I knew when I made my first complaint that I would have a target on my back. So I thought doing the right thing was the most important thing. And I, and I don't regret that. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I was concerned about what I'd get 
uh, paid and what my income would look like and the mortgages and you know I had to pay and the kids uh, to feed and all that. So it wasn't without some level of stress, but you know I have a good support structure. My wife was with me every step of the way, and you know we're, we're fortunate enough to have some financial independence. But it, it, those types of things, um, you know, when it comes down to that bottom line in your personal life, uh, they matter, and they they, yeah. they don't sit well with you, and you lose nights of sleep and and the things associated with that. So, okay, let's talk about what your job actually was. You were, what position did you hold and what were your responsibilities? And did that position that you held um, impact, I guess, the the intensity with which you were, uh, they came after you? Yeah, so, I mean, initially I was the, uh, the number two person in the intelligence apparatus within DHS, but the highest career official. Um, and I held that from 2018 when I arrived till uh, when my boss, who was a politically appointed undersecretary, left in March of 2020, and then I became the acting undersecretary. But kind of regardless of what the, the job was, um, you know, every couple of days, uh, to, you know, or if not every day, I was meeting with cabinet officials, both within um, the uh, department and the most senior people across the NSC, as well as the uh, the folks that uh, were in charge of the NSC, or at least some of the deputies there, I should say, uh, and the other kind of intelligence community leaders. So really, at some level, I mean, I never uh, personally met Donald Trump, but um, you know, I was probably one step underneath that in terms of the people that I was interacting with. So whether or not, you know, they all knew that I had filed the initial complaint in March, you know, I don't know that, but I certainly felt that um, there was conversation I was purposely not brought into um, that was clear to me or my subordinates were taken out of them, um, you know, because they, they, I couldn't be trusted from a political standpoint. I know by watching an interview you did on ABC with George Stephanopoulos, or at least I heard him say this, and I'm going to ask you for your corroboration on this. He said that you are a Republican and that you voted for Donald Trump. And I want to first ask, is that true? Yeah, that's absolutely the case. Okay. Uh, I mean, I'm not a card-carrying member of the Republican Party. Yeah, I've got a follow-up for you, though, so I don't, you don't need to explain any of that. What I, what I, yeah. want, to, what I want to ask you about is... At what point did you or did you think you made a mistake? Uh, in terms of uh, vote. yeah, voting for Trump, you know, it really wasn't until I think I got to DHS because I was much closer to the political part of it before, as opposed before I was in the FBI. Um, that's really where I was like, this is a problem. I mean, as a president, you know, he is responsible for the people he puts in place and the policies and uh, and whatnot. And so it was the people that I think were the most alarming, um, some of the policies as well, but really for me, it was more the people, um, because they are people that I would call illiberal in terms of their focus, which is they hide in a liberal society, democracy, and they, uh, from the inside out, basically destroy it. And there are liberal people there that don't care about um, the Constitution, democracy, civil liberties, and um, all those things that we almost take for granted. So was your decision to become a whistleblower based in part on that, or was it just the facts, just just because of what they were doing? 
I, you know, I had uh, tried to work within the system and that's the way I grew up. I, not that it's right or wrong, but I had never been a, um, you know, whistleblower before. I never filed any, you know, complaints to an IG or anything like that in my, I guess it was about 24 years of service before that. So, you know, the way I was trained was like, look, work within the inside, um, but there's a limit to it, right? I mean, eventually when your ability to work within the inside is, is over, um, you know, you have choices to make. And when I was no longer able to work on the inside, um, that's when I filed the, the third complaint. And it was supposed to, it's supposed to be, uh, you know, not a public complaint. It was given to Congress and some other folks. So, you know, I'm not uh, naive to think that it wouldn't be leaked. And, and that's indeed what had happened. Um, I'm not mad about that, but it wasn't my intent to become a political person, but rather uh, it was time to bring Congress into the uh, equation. But here's the problem that we face now based on some conversations that I've had with some other people on this podcast and in my other reporting. And that is that this is where we are right now. The United States is not able to really do anything to stop Russia from what it's doing Uh, and take today, the 1st of December, 2021, it's on the brink, according to numerous sources of, of invading Ukraine. Again, the U S can't do much about it. According to other sources, because the president is so weak on the Hill, Um, you know, his support on the Hill is, it won't allow him to do it. I mean, you know, the division between the Democrats and the Republicans is so great that they couldn't come together to save this country even after the U.S. fought World War II to save Europe. And a part of what's happening is this disinformation that you and your team were struggling to put out, being squashed, of course, by the the very people that were supposed to make sure it got out, has essentially put the country in a place where it's so divided that people don't really see the impact down the road of what's going to happen to the rest of Europe if Ukraine does fall to Russia. And my thought and question to you is that, hey, you know, (laughs) do people really understand how much damage has been done? And can you explain how much damage has been done because of what was taking place while you were there? So I think you really uh, nailed it in terms of Ukraine. Uh, that's a perfect use case because the Russian objective, you know, they may or may not personally like Donald Trump. I, I don't. It doesn't matter to them, right? Whether they agree with his pol, you know, his kind of Republican form of government is irrelevant. What they wanted is the conditions by which you just described. That we can't get it together because we uh, look at our fellow countrymen or fellow congressional um, colleagues, uh, you know, as the enemy, the other, the person not to be trusted. So their ultimate goal here is the division. Um, And to such an extent that we're really in a place of polarization, that it's not easy to cross over. Uh, And then the fringe elements become the core elements or outsized in terms of their influence. And I think that's happened. Uh, So you know, it's not all the Russians' fault, of course, but they certainly were uh, contributing to it, and they're one of the best in the world um, to to make that come about. So they've achieved what they wanted to achieve with the case of Ukraine, right? If we can't get together and have a policy, and the president's hands are are tied based on this viciousness in our country, they've contributed to causing that. And and to kind of close here, you're I don't think people understand 
what disinformation does. You know, polarization, people hear these buzzwords, uh, disinformation, but they don't really understand at the level that we need to teach them about what the long-term implications are, what the core strategy of the adversary is, which again is Donald Trump could leave tomorrow and the Russians are gonna still do the same thing they've been doing, which is make those conditions untenable for a functioning government to, to figure things out. You now are working for a firm that essentially does what it is you say needs to be needs to be done needs to happen so just in a nutshell what's the uh the basic approach to getting people first of all getting people to sit still long enough to listen is a really big problem but getting people to listen and then what are you going to tell them while they're listening well those are great questions and you know the company i'm at now uh, i mean like very few of us get to go on do things that we love and i'm blessed to be able to do that uh but you know, really what this comes back to is, is two basic premises in our company, using the best tech in the world to unequivocally demonstrate to people that are the doubters what's happening, right? So we can very quickly identify, let's say things like our inauthentic, inauthentic accounts, show them to policymakers and show how narratives go cross platform and social media and those algorithms drive that towards the unexpected people that, that will then regurgitate them and put them out, right? Which is most of us in the US. So you have to start from a very tactical level to get people on board with it. And then from a more strategic long-term perspective, because um, deplatforming of, uh, you know, let's say Russian accounts or uh, whatever the, you know, let's say it's the, the Proud Boys or other kind of hate mongers are out there, that's an important step but we're never gonna be able to deplatform enough accounts because they move to the next thing, right? Um, so the long-term strategy we have is resiliency building uh, into our education system, where we're able to combine the best of STEM um, research and learning that takes place in everywhere from K to 12 on up and demonstrate that so that people can get that broader resiliency understanding to really uh, scrutinize the information they get and then do something about it to, to make sure that we have a more concerned citizenry uh, that is scrutinizing both technically and also the content they get and they don't just pass it on because it's you know interesting there are deep implications um, of you know this kind of world that we live in in social media and social media is not going to go away but we need to build that resiliency in so you're now outside you're in the private sector and I'm assuming you don't have access to any of the classified stuff that's going on about disinformation, but you've got something better, and that is the real deal. You're able to use tech to look at what's happening um, across these platforms and see where it's coming from and understand how it's being utilized. So the thing that I'd like to ask you about right now, specifically, uh, as we look at where the U.S. is approaching January 6th again, uh, and looking at the fact that not a lot has changed since then, and looking at the fact that there are so many people that still haven't figured out that they're being manipulated by disinformation, a lot of which is coming from Russia. So uh, how long do we have before it's too late? Uh, you know, it's hard to put our, our you know, my finger on that timeline. I, I think I'd put it this way, that uh, we've seen what a little effort by uh, and it, you know, it's not that the Russians invested uh, great resources into their campaign. They just didn't need to. 
So we see what a little effort, well-crafted by one nation, what's done to our country. We now know multiple nations are uh, involved for various reasons. Um, and you know they all have <clears throat> they have different objectives sometimes, but at the end of the day, what they want is chaos in our country. So I think where I would say about January 6th and kind of our timeline, we we have every every day we don't start building that resiliency into our population, it exponentially gets worse, and then our timeline moves in the wrong direction against us, right? So until we start getting resiliency plans in K through 12 schools. And, and I appreciate you having me on to talk about this so people get a better awareness and a deeper sense of what's going on. Um, that timeline is going in the wrong direction. And, you know, I don't think we have decades, uh, that's for sure. Um, but it's hard to say how close we are to a tipping point. Okay. Um, I want to get a little bit from you before we close about your, about your situation while you were had the target on your back. And just to kind of make this a human thing. Um, Of course, all of this is human, but I want to humanize it a little bit more so people can see what you actually had to go through uh, during the course of, um, during the course of, of, of your time. Um, Give me a sense of, was there a day that was the absolute worst day that you can remember? What was that day and what was it like? Yeah, I, I think probably the hardest day for me was, um, I, I think it was July 31st, because in, in the background, you know, things didn't stop in other areas. So we had the uh, George Floyd uh, inspired protests going on. And of course, 99% of the protest activity was peaceful and people were doing uh, the right thing by expressing their, their views in the public square. Certainly, we did have threat actors out there taking advantage, and they came from both the left and the right. Um, so, you know, really what happened was uh, on, in mid-July, um, my organization was looking for Russian disinformation, and a lot of that uh, we were looking for, some of it I should say we looking for, was leaked government documents or created documents that looked like government documents. And we collected items which uh, the press had put out, and the press, I think rightfully, uh, at least the, the people that put out, did not trust the government, not me particularly, but or maybe they didn't, I don't know, but... Uh, you know, they didn't have faith in, in the framework because they knew what was happening on the inside. And so when this became exposed, it was, hey, uh, the uh, DHS is collecting on uh, reporters and they're building dossiers on them. Um, you know, that wasn't the case in anything that I had to do with, but that was the, the spin. And that was really the point by which uh, Chad Wolf saw his line of sight to, to, quite frankly, take me out, which he had been threatened to do. And so uh, the reason why I call it the most difficult day is because I literally had left uh, his office and was uh, probably five minutes down the road and get a call from a reporter from Politico. And then right after that, other people said, hey, we heard you got fired for these five reasons. You know, do you have a comment? And I didn't give comment to anybody at that time. But the reason why that really bothered me was because not only did they take me out, but they had so tarnished me unfairly in my mind publicly and didn't give me a chance to, uh, you know, do the right thing. It was painful because it had to do with not just me anymore, but now my family was going to be looking at the headlines and things like that. But mm-hmm. also kind of close that part of it by saying, well, that was one of the harder days. At no point did I, I knew it was going to be hard. It's just what's, I didn't, wasn't prepared for, let's say, the way that it came out. You know, I'm not owed anything by anybody. I'd never wanted anything from anybody from this. And the good news behind all this on the human side of it 
people I don't know and people that I hadn't talked to forever, hundreds and thousands, I mean, thousands literally reached out to me personally and offered me support. And I've never had anything but that. And so the beauty of, I think what's happened from human level is uh, you find out who your friends are and you have a lot more than you anticipate. Um, I certainly did. And I can't extend my gratitude to the thousands that uh, reached out to me and publicly and privately have supported me. So overall, it's been, you know, I don't say a good experience, but it's been a lot of good takeaways from the experience. Well, you know what? Uh, congratulations on the fact that you are still standing and thriving right now because um, the story that you're telling, and we promise to tell more of your story down the road here on Target USA because I'm getting the sense that there is a whole lot more to this story than we know about, even with the whistleblower documents and even what you've said on other networks and here on this podcast. There is a whole lot more to the story. And a part of the reason why I say that, Mr. Murphy, is because somehow people, I think, in this country have to really wake up and recognize that it doesn't matter what your political persuasion is or, you know, where, where you're heading. If you're in the United States, you need to understand right now that we are at, we're, there is a big threat facing this nation right now, and it's coming from abroad. And if we don't get this right, there won't be a nation left to do what we do in. Do you understand what I'm saying? Unfortunately, I have to agree with you. And I'm saying, unfortunately, for the obvious reasons, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I want to thank you for joining us. And uh, I'm hopeful that you will join us again in the future. Of course, anytime. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. That's Brian Murphy, former acting undersecretary of intelligence at DHS. He's now vice president of strategic operations at Logically. Very smart guy. That's it for this episode. Coming up in our next episode, the supply chain. It's been under attack from cyber criminals for a while. Those attacks are going to continue. And guess what? We've got a big problem. We're not actually joined up on our side. Chris Inglis is the National Cyber Director. We have a doctrinal problem, which is we're not sure, in, in many cases, for these supply chains. And Inglis suggests we've got to get this right and get it right soon. And so if there's a number one issue that I think we should address is we need to figure out who is accountable for what and make sure that our people skills and our doctrine are up to the cause. Ultimately, we'll find that technology also needs to be addressed, but if we don't get the first two parts right, um, it's a fool's errand to simply work on the third. That's coming up in the next episode of Target USA. In the meantime, if you have questions or comments about the program, send me an email. You can reach me at jgreen at wtop.com. That's the letter J, the color green, one word at whiskey, tango, Oscar, Papa .com. jgreen at wtop.com. Also, follow us on Twitter. We're at TUSA Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. If you want more national security news, you can sign up for my newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff, and you can sign up at WTOP.com slash alerts. I'm JJ Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Now. Stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.